Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. You know, I got to say, I am so happy to have this job and be able to do this uh, with and for you guys. This is just, uh, man, it's, it's a real privilege. Um, okay, I wanted to say that if you did not catch the live show on Friday, I very much encourage you to do so, so that you can uh, hear me address any and all recent concerns and all of that about, uh, you know, recent community drama, blah, blah, blah. So uh, that is there for you. And, um, you know, I've sort of resigned myself to the fact that people are going to think what they want to think uh, first and foremost. And facts, you know, sometimes are optional. And that's okay. I get it. Totally get it. Been talking about it for years, and it is what it is. Um, I want to thank everybody who has been very supportive of me and my channel, uh, directly and indirectly, and of course my um, uh, the people on Patreon and otherwise who always help me keep this channel going and are really steady Eddie supporters for me. I I just can't thank all of you enough uh, for your ongoing help with that. You guys are the ones who keep the lights on and the show going. And that being said, let's get on with your questions now. Cause that's why we're doing this show. CTF. Recently, I went into a church of Scientology and did some of the tests they offer as a free service. I did the OCA or personality test as well as their 30 minute IQ test. I have a few questions for you about them. A was the IQ test designed to be hard to complete in 30 minutes. B, with the OCA, I did not say I was very depressed or aggressive or critical of others, nor did I say I had the feeling my life was without a point. The person administering my test came back after I completed it and said I was very depressed, quick to anger, and someone who looks down on others, and then said I was someone who did not see the point of living. Was this a one-off, or does this happen to everyone who takes the OCA? C. After completing these tests, my IQ was listed as being in the high 120s, which they said was significantly higher than most people. Is that normal? All right, Scientology testing. This is something I've actually done a whole video breakdown on in the years ago about the personality test and sort of where it came from, if you're interested in that. I'll uh, try to remember to throw a link to that in the, the description section below um, because that was a real interesting ride, learning all about the history of psychometric testing and what bunk most of it is, including, I'm afraid, uh, a lot of IQ testing and the entire concept of IQ. These are, um, these are difficult concepts, and once you start, actually, it sounds simple. It sounds easy. Everybody gets this. It's no big problem. What's the problem? You just fill out some questions and how smart are you? But it's not that smart. It's not that way at all when you start considering how you have to measure these scores cross-culturally, across languages, across uh, all of humanity. Are you, are you, you know, proposing to uh, have a metric to measure how intelligent or how smart or how clever or cunning or problem-solving Americans are? Or do you want to have something that's going to do that for everybody in the world, no matter what language they speak or what culture they come from? The, you know, And this is just the beginning of the difficulties. How do you account for or control for people lying on the test or trying to goose the test one way or the other? That happens. How do you, you got to account for that? It's to all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, let me answer your questions here about this. because. Uh, but first, let me set the stage by letting everybody know 
that the Church of Scientology offers three tests as introductory services to entice you to come in and talk to them. And one of them is the there's a they what they call a free battery of tests. They'll do them all together, or they will just do one of them, the personality test. That's the most important one. That one has 200 questions of yes, no, or uh, in between, maybe, and um, and it takes the longest. It usually takes somebody anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes to an hour to fill that test out, depending on um, obviously how fast they're reading and thinking. Um, I got to the point, having taken it so many times in Scientology, that I could fill out that 200-question uh, uh, test, uh, personality test, in about five minutes. <laughs> just, actually, maybe less. I mean, you just, you just learn the questions. Anyway, um, then there's an IQ test. So you have the personality test. You have an IQ test, 30-minute time test, uh, two pages, a uh, bunch of quite. I think it's 30. 50 questions? I think it's 50 questions. Um, and then you have a um, what's called a leadership test or a leadership survey. And this is just a, a two-page form. Oh, and then there's an aptitude test. Sorry, there's also an aptitude test. So you have four tests. The leadership test, actually, I, I'm speaking a little out of turn, that's mostly done for uh, Scientology executive qualifications. It's not actually a usually an introductory service. The aptitude test is, and that's a timed test where uh, it usually takes about a minute or two, and it's two pages back and front with uh, sort of tricky questions and, you know, sort of questions that are designed to consume your thinking and time to run out the clock and, and increase how long it's taking you to, to, to do the test. The idea being that there's a certain range of how fast do you get through it, well, that determines your aptitude uh, how fast you are on your feet and thinking and how, or on the other hand, if you're really slow, how messed up you are. So was the IQ test designed to be hard to complete in 30 minutes? Yeah, it is. It, it definitely is. They don't want people finishing it. And it usually takes a few times of taking that test before you will get it done in less than 30 minutes. And eventually, of course, you take these tests over and over again. You start getting it down to like, you know, you get the whole thing done in about 10 or 15 minutes. Because um, you're just familiar with the questions. And there are it's interesting because with the IQ test and with the aptitude test, there are three different versions of each test. Similar or same questions, but they're mixed up or, or uh, thrown around a little bit. The IQ test has different math questions or different you know, calculations to do. Um, so they do try to mix it up that way where if they've tested somebody on test A, the next time they'll try to give them B. But when you test over and over and over again, the way they do in Scientology periodically, especially if you're a staff member, um, then, uh, you'll get used to taking these tests and they, and they have you take these tests, by the way, for various qualifications, uh, determinations, uh, if there's certain jobs or posts or, or things that you're going to get involved in or you're going to get cleared for, you're going to get security access to, that requires you have certain test scores in certain ranges. They have to be above a certain minimum. I don't remember what they all are, but, you know, for example, to work in the personnel department in the Hubbard Communications Office, Division One of a Scientology organization, any Scientology organization, in order to work in that division, you have to have an IQ, I think, above 100 or 110 or something. Um, and other, and your OCA, your personality test has to all be above what's called the center line. 
because the graph here, I'll show you a graph right now. This is what the test results of an OCA or personality test look like. It's those uh, all those characteristics plotted on a scale of 100 to minus 100. So your, your qualifications are often um, checked in Scientology using these tests. And if you're not above the center line on every point on that personality test, then you'll be flagged for handling of some kind and you might not be qualified, qualified for certain jobs. So you ask here about whether it was um, a one-off or does it happen to everyone who takes the personality test when they come in as an introductory service? Does it happen that they are insulted and told that they're depressed and quick to anger and judged very harshly as though they don't, you know, they feel they don't have any point in living? And the answer to the question is yes, that's exactly what happens in the evaluations. They are meant to be hard hitting. They are meant to, you know, kind of slap you around and get you to wake up to the fact that you have issues and problems and you need to deal with those. And that's why you walked in here in the first place, right? You know, this, the Scientology salesperson will address you very directly on these points and say, you know, you've got issues and problems. You walked in here for a reason. Let's deal with them. We actually have classes and counseling and et cetera that will help you deal with these problems. And what they're doing is they're hitting you with this stuff so that you will to see what what provokes a response and get you to tell them what's up, right? Maybe these aren't the things that are wrong with you, but maybe something else is, and this will goose you or jar you into telling them. Um, and they'd rather have you arguing with them than not saying anything and walking out the door. So they'll they'll get into it, and then they'll chill you out, and then they'll find out, well, what? Well, I'm sorry I upset you. Well, what? What is it that you feel is ruining your life? You know, they'll just go, they'll just turn it and go right for the jugular anyway. They're, you know, if you're sitting down in front of a Scientology salesperson, that that person is not going to just stop <laughs> trying to extricate, you know, extract money from you. So, um, so they'll say whatever they need to, and they usually open with this kind of hard hitting stuff. Totally normal. Don't take it personally. Don't uh, and don't worry about it because this test is total horseshit. Yeah, the OCA does not have any scientific validity. It is not a metric that you should be at all concerned about. And if you know these things were said to you and you are concerned about these judgments, uh, just let it go. Uh, there's nothing to it. There's no validity to it of any kind. Um, and then you asked, uh, you know, it, was it significantly higher than most people? Is it normal that your IQ was in the in the 120s? That is actually pretty high for that test for somebody just coming in off the street. Normally speaking, people do score much lower on that test. So yeah, that would not be um, that would not be normal. That'd be kind of interesting. And they don't really use the IQ or the aptitude test the same way they use the personality test. It's more informational. Oh yeah, hey, here's your IQ. Isn't that interesting? Oh, here's your aptitude. Yeah, it's a, it's a little you know middle of the range. Or oh, you have quite good response time if it's a good score. Or oh wow, you you really took a while on that one. It's uh, and it, and it shows you have a negative score as a result, right? You can end up getting a negative score if I remember right. So those tests are not used super hardcore the same way the personality test is. That's the one where they're really trying to get you to open up. And Hubbard actually has, just on that business of what I said earlier about slapping you around, Hubbard actually has policies written about that exact thing. He says you have to penetrate. You have to get through their barriers and social veneer and 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 the um, 
you know, the manners and the, and the sort of facade that we all put up as a social thing for people. You're supposed to penetrate through that as the salesperson and as the test evaluator and salesperson, and you're supposed to get the person to open up. So that's the tactic and strategy there. So if you want that kind of treatment, then, you know, march on into a church of Scientology and demand to take an OCA and watch what happens. There you go. Steve Wood. How do you think the leaders of Scientology would have explained Hubbard's death if he had died in some other fashion, such as falling off a cliff, a car crash, cancer, or whatever? How would they have framed that, since I think if he just died suddenly, they'd have a hard time repeating the whole went-off-to-do-OT research story? What are your thoughts? Okay, Steve, thank you very much for this question. I actually think, and this might surprise you, I don't know, but I I don't think it would really be any different. I don't think that the shore story, as they call it in the Sea Org or in Scientology, the thing you tell the non-Scientology world or the thing you tell the public, you don't tell them the truth. You tell them a shore story. You tell them whatever they need to hear. Remember, Scientology is the group that has acceptable truths, right? Uh, These are lies, but they're, they're lies that are calculated to be acceptable to the person that is hearing them. So they'll believe it and move on and not ask any more questions. And the simplest, easiest story for L. Ron Hubbard, for Scientologists, is that he dropped his body causatively, knowingly, and he moved on to do his further OT research. There really can't be any other answer that's going to be acceptable to Scientologists. If L. Ron Hubbard were to get hit by a bus or, you know, have some panel fall on him or something, then that would clearly demonstrate he's not an operating Thetan. He's not the leader of a spiritual movement that is, you know, destined for greatness. He's just some schlep. And so that's an unacceptable truth and therefore cannot be spoken. So it doesn't, so my point here is because of that, it doesn't really matter what the truth of L. Ron Hubbard's death would have been or could have been it was going to be spun into this acceptable truth. And no matter what, I mean, unless it was impossible to do otherwise. And L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986. There's no internet in 1986. There's no cell phones. There's nobody tracking and, and, and having a camera on the guy. And let's remember, he was in hiding for years. Um, no less than what, five, six years. Totally solitary, alone with, you know, just a couple handful of of dedicated hardcore Sea Org members, the brokers and uh, and a couple other people on his ranch up in Creston and, you know, or driving around in the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. And that was, that was it. That was Hubbard's life for the last few years of his life. So he was alone. He was uh, isolated and, you know, therefore any story could have been woven about what he was up to, what he was, where he was at, right? Other than a couple things in terms of writings he put out, a couple recordings he made. There was nothing coming out of L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, David Miscavige could have, Pat Broker, they could have made up anything. Um, but Broker was, you know, whatever, however, had, had whatever loyalties he had. And so, um, so the issues and data from Hubbard continued to flow. But, you know, when the time came, it was, okay, well, we're sure as hell not going to be able to tell all the Scientology world that this guy died alone in a ditch, right, in a trailer, with uh, you know, with with psychotropics in his in his veins and a and a dismal failure and crazy on top of that, 
you know, that's the last thing we can do. So how are we going to spin this, right? And the lawyer for Scientology, his name was Earl Cooley, and David Miscavige and, and a small number of people who were in on all the knowledge of this, uh, you know, cooked up this story of how L. Ron Hubbard uh, died and they and they foisted it off on the on the public. So I just I just don't see any other option for them. And those are my thoughts on that is it didn't, it, you know, if he'd fallen off a cliff, they would have, they would have covered it up. If he had been, uh, if he'd um, had a car crash, they would have covered it up. If he got cancer, they would have covered it up. You know, that's kind of just what I'm saying there. So there you go. Malt Rodbach. I once knew a bully from my school days who one day messed up with the wrong guy. After that, he was like a different person. Do you think something like that could happen with David Miscavige if someone fought back? Absolutely, I do. David Miscavige only gets away with what he does because people let him. They enable him to. And he would never have the power or uh, be able to get away with what he does if he wasn't surrounded by a whole bunch of people that enable him in doing that. So um, if somebody were to come along and actually challenge him and see, this is the dictator problem. This is how, this is why and how dictators have got to create an inner sanctum that nobody can really pierce or get close to where he is secure and the people around him are under his complete control, at least as far as he's concerned, unless there's some kind of palace coup. And that has been attempted in the past and, and shut down and shut off. And this is the dictator problem. The dictator has to solve this problem. And this is why we see confession culture, secret police, reporting, snitch culture. It's all to protect the leader from his own people. And that's that that every dictator in history has had this problem. So Miscavige is really no different. Um, so he's not going to let anybody get into his vicinity who's going to be a challenge or a threat to him. He's going to put them down before they get to that position, hopefully. And that's what intelligence, you know, the whole in, the, the and by I mean like the um, surveillance kind of intelligence. I don't mean like intelligence. I mean like you know, surveying people, having them on the meter all the time, constantly sex-checking people around you uh, because they believe the meter works and they will confess their crimes and deepest thoughts and darkest thoughts. And they are thought policed where those those thoughts alone can become crimes. Um, this is, you know, do you have any evil intentions on David Miscavige is a question you would ask somebody on an e-meter. And if it, if it responds... Suddenly, you're being thought policed, right? Oh, what's this evil intention you have toward Miscavige? And then they pull it. Oh, well, I kind of wanted to see him, you know, get hurt one time. Really? Okay, well, just before that, what over did you commit, right? Like, okay, now we're going to find out what kind of moral transgressions you have against David Miscavige. And he's running this operation all the time against every person in his inner sanctum. He's constantly... Uh, thought policing them with the meter, without the meter, not to mention he's beating up on them and alternating this with doling out little rewards, little bonuses, little rewards, night off, little thing here or there, few and far between, just enough to keep them on the hook, right? More punishment than there is reward for the most part. Um, but that's how that, that's how that whole trauma bonding thing works. It's awful. It is absolutely awful. Um, but that is exactly the way that David Miscavige has got to structure his entire life. He has got to live around that kind of principle. I don't even 
know the specifics of his inner life, but I know for sure everything I just said has to be true. Because that's how he survives. That's how he gets along. That's how come nobody has come along and punched him in the nose and put him in his place because he's a short little dictator dickhead. And that's David Miscavige. He's, he is a psycho. And he could easily be put down. I could probably put him down and I'm nothing. You know, but who's going to? Nobody around him is going to let you do that. That's his secret, is his protection, is all of his enablers around him. And this is why this point of, you know, anyway, it's just why it's so important that people understand how this stuff works. And most people don't, and they don't even care to. And that's why we continually have little dictators and tin pot, you know, asshats uh, running religious cults and running countries because people put them there and then they leave them there and keep them there. They empower them. And those empowers, those enablers are the ones who actually prevent those dictators from seeing their, their real justice. So that's unfortunately the harsh kind of reality of it, but that's how it works. Brandon Anonymous. I was thinking about the fact that when someone attests to the state of clear in Scientology, they get a clear number, which tells them where they are in the grand queue of clears. When they take that status away and then you reattain it, do they renumber you or do they artificially inflate the numbers by counting these twice? Thanks for this, Brandon. Um, and it's an interesting question only in that it's like deep Scientology minutia that I'll comment on because people might find it interesting uh, because the clear numbers are not kept quite the way you uh, might imagine. They are doled out in blocks to different organizations over the years who have had the ability to make clears. If you have a Keokuk or you know Albuquerque or something, they're not making any clears and not, they don't even have the ability to. So they're not getting any clear numbers assigned to them. They're not getting any block of, of numbers assigned to them. But an organization that does make clears does get that. So they might be, okay, the next... Uh, 100 clears you're going to make are going to be numbers 38,100 to 38,200. And that organization would keep a little log of those clear numbers and who was assigned to them. And, and they'd probably write it down. This is not even electronically or digitally kept. This is all handwritten in, you know, little little legal books and stuff. There's this is And what I'm trying to get across here is nobody cares. No one cares. That's kind of my point here is nobody's using the clear numbers particularly to as census figures for an accurate number of how many clears there are. Because of this block system of numbering, they can't. You could never have a precise number of how many there are using that system of numbering. You only have an approximation. And that's what they've been doing for years and years, decades in Scientology to count the clear numbers. And I, and the the practice when the person reattests, as far as I know, is to not renumber them. They had a number, they they get that number back, right? And that's their clear number. So no reason to renumber them um, because that would be obviously inflating the figures. Even Scientologists would figure that part out. Uh, so that's the answer to your question. And um, let me see if there's anything else about this to comment on. Not really. Nah, that's about it. There you go. Jonathan Perry. I was wondering what would happen legally and within the institution of Scientology if a child... A minor of Scientology parents was declared an SP. Would they just throw them out on the street? Let's say they had no other family to go to. How would that scenario play out? 
Theoretically speaking, uh, a, a child, a minor child of a Scientology couple could be declared a suppressive person and declared persona non grata. And the parents would be, you know, in the awkward and bizarre position of having to disconnect from their own minor child who's living in their home. I've never seen anything like that. I have seen children who were incredibly troublesome and non-cooperative with the church and, uh, you know, good on them, uh, being given pretty short shrift by their Scientology parents, uh, the subject of a lot of ethics, work, and a lot of punishment, and, uh, you know, belittling and things like that. Ian Rafalco, who was uh, most recently here on the channel as a second-gen survivor of Scientology, had a lot to say about that kind of treatment uh, by his rather indifferent parents when he was not super interested in Scientology. Um, but as far as kicking them out, I've never really seen that. They would generally be not allowed into the church property, though, if they were troublesome to church or to the church staff. If they found if the church labeled a child in turbulative, right, and they could put them under what's called a non-interbulation order. This is a word that's used to describe chaos or dis, you know, dissettlement or upset or fervor, you know, fur, fur. Uh, you know, they're making trouble. And so they're interbulating. They're making me upset. I'm interbulated. I'm offended. I'm, I'm upset by what you're doing. That The word for that in Scientology is interbulated. And so if a, if a child, minor, you know, of a, of a Scientology couple were, were interbulating, then they'd probably just be, you know, told, hey, don't, don't, don't bring them down to the org. We don't really want them around. But, uh, but I never saw anybody go way out of their way to formally go through the process of declaring a child. However, I'm throwing this out there because I'm actually genuinely curious if any of my watchers or people who have been in Scientology before did see this, please tell me about it. Maybe I'm forgetting or not remembering something, but I, I just don't remember anything like this. But I'd be very interested in what anybody out there has to tell me about this because um, it might very well be that it's happened. It, Scientology really has no bottom. And, uh, and I don't say that it's beyond the realm of possibility that a kid would have been kicked out of their home or kicked to the curb, even on the street, uh, if they were declared suppressive in Scientology. It's within the rule set for that to happen. So anyway, just uh, letting you guys know. You, you let me know. All right. Michael Yoder. I've been listening to LRH lectures from the Clearing Congress, 1958. At one point, he talks about working on a mother's valence to get rid of her son's valence. Lack of personal creativeness. What is the Scientology theory behind this? I know it doesn't make sense, but clearly for LRH it did. You can't cure someone of the flu to get rid of someone else's flu. Okay, I think I see what you were asking there. And this is a pretty odd one, Michael. So let me uh, explain to the audience uh, a little bit of, this is almost uh, Scientology, you know, dogma 101 or Scientology technology 101, right? Like, Let's talk a little bit about pure Scientology here. And here we're going to use the word valence. This is, a, this is a specialized word in Scientology to indicate a personality or the concept or package of what constitutes or makes up a person's personality according to someone else. Okay, here's how it works. Um, I am Chris Shelton. I am in my own valence. I am my own personality. That is how I would say it is. I am, I am me. I'm not in the valence of Chris Shelton. I am Chris Shelton. However, I'm aware of the fact that there's another being, my mom, another being, my dad. Grew up with him, been with him, you know, been around him my whole life. 
their personality is their personality. But I, in my mind, create an image of them and their personality with all the character traits I'm aware of that that person has, their habits, their little personal tics, their their sayings and and the you know the words they use and their mannerisms and and their attitudes and most importantly their attitudes and ideas about things as communicated just to me i'm not privy to my mother or my father's private conversations with their friends with each other with their family i don't know about any of that i only know what i know that creates in my mind a valence of them a representation of their personality as I see it. From this valence, I will draw personality traits or characteristics or even illnesses and problems, physical disabilities, and make them my own. I will incorporate them into my personality because for some reason I'm dependent on this valence or I once received sympathy and support from this person and therefore they are an ally to me. These are all Scientology terms, ally, you know, valence, uh, this whole concept of if I was sick one time and my mother took care of me, you know, there's this valence package in my head of my mother and she's this kind person and she's caring and she loves me and that's part of it, right? And if she wears glasses and i want to be like her because i want to be caring and 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 loving and supportive of people then maybe i start reactively in my reactive mind i you know this idea starts coming up of merging that aspect of of her personality with mine and so i will take on her physical mannerisms and characteristics i'll talk like her maybe I will start looking a little bit more like her, or presenting more like her. And I don't mean wearing dresses and stuff. I don't mean wearing women's clothes. I just mean as myself, I'm taking little bits and pieces. We've all seen, all of us have seen um, parents and children who look just like the parents. They got the same frame glasses. They wear similar kind of clothes, that kind of thing. We would say in Scientology, those kids are in their parents' valence mom or dad, whoever one, whichever one they're more looking like. And you can be in more than one person's valence at a time. It's not a full thing. You're drawing bits and pieces. So you could have a little bit of dad, a little bit of mom, a little bit of this person, a little bit of that person. It's a little subconscious. It's not a conscious effort on a person's part. It's something that they're doing without knowing about it. And therefore, in auditing, Hubbard said, you could address this. You could start taking this apart and disassembling these package personalities that, have sort, that the person sort of glommed onto themselves, where they're really not being themselves. They're trying to be somebody else. And that effort to be somebody else is being in their valence, okay? So that's, that's the language of it and the concept of it. There are very parallel psychological principles here uh, that could be discussed, but Hubbard was really just kind of throwing another spanner in the mix Another thing to audit, another thing to talk about, another reason people act the way they do. This, that's, you know, Hubbard just threw this in there as just another component of Scientology. It's not particularly important. It's not given a lot of attention. It's almost minutiae. It's not used very often, even in auditing, uh, you know, addressing somebody's valence or valence problems. 
are is is done few and far between. It's not a mainline activity in Scientology. It's something that comes up when people get sick or they're kind of dramatizing in some direction that's clearly that they're acting like somebody else or something that this might come up. And even then it's, you know, it's it's hardly talked about. So this isn't a big deal in Scientology, but it's uh, but it's there and it's part of it. So now you know. Okay, and that is our show for this week. We uh, kind of got right to the point, and I just thought I would rattle around through those answers. So thank you very much for coming along and uh, listening to what I had to say this week, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.